I think the intentions behind it are really good. And so I want to, you know, promote those behaviors, but I also want to keep people informed. So they're not, you know, spending lots of money on things that are completely invalid, like the IgG food sensitivity test or something like that, you know, trying to look for a problem that isn't there. Welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. If you're not familiar with Clinical Athlete, we're a network of healthcare providers, students, and coaches who specialize in the management of athletes. You can find your nearest Clinical Athlete provider at clinicalathlete.com. We also have the Clinical Athlete Forum, where we discuss and share ideas and resources related to athlete health and performance. To join the forum or for potential listing on the Clinical Athlete Directory and for all upcoming seminars, webinars, and events, details can be found on the website. This podcast can also be found on your favorite platform, and if that platform allows you to rate the show, we'd appreciate you taking the time to do that so that we can get this information out to as many people as possible. My name is Quinn Hennick. I'm a doctor of physical therapy in Orange County, California at Clinical Athlete Newport. On this show, we are joined by co-host Jared Maynard, who is the Clinical Athlete Continuing Education Director and Coordinator, and a physiotherapist at Depth Physiotherapy in Waterloo, Ontario, Canada. He is also a strength coach and runs an online powerlifting coaching company and is a competitive powerlifter himself. And we have our other co-host, John Flagg, who is an athletic trainer and the powerlifting, weightlifting, and strongman coach at 301 Strong in White Plains, Maryland, and the owner of Rebuild Stronger, an online coaching platform for strength athletes. He is also a clinical athlete provider and lead instructor of the clinical athlete powerlifting certification. And we're very excited to welcome onto the show Dr. Gabrielle Fundero, who has a PhD in human nutrition, foods, and exercise with a special interest in the gut microbiome. And that's what we're talking about on this show. Dr. Fundero dispels some myths and drops a ton of knowledge on a subject that we've not yet talked about on the show, and who doesn't love a good discussion about or related to poop. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast, everybody. This is John Flagg. I'm a certified athletic trainer. And today we have Quinn from the land of butterflies. Say that's hi, right. Quinn. That's uh, California for those of – you know, that's like a year old now. I don't think that – we had the butterfly I, influx last year. Still relevant. Okay, fine. I like it. I'm just the butterfly guy from now on. It, that's, that's what you're going to be. Fine. And then Jared in the land of snow beasts and hockey – Absolutely. Canada land. How you doing, buddy? Oh, I'm good. I'm good. Happy to be here as always. Cool. So today is a, it's a, a bit of a different topic. We, we do a lot of rehab and clinical stuff. Um, but I first met Dr. Fundero at the RP Summit, and she talked about the gut microbiome, and it was incredibly compelling to me. And we see such it's, – it's such a hot topic on social media, and I know I get a question a week about gut health and performance and, and how that how people can impact that. So I thought it'd be great to bring her on. Um, Dr. Fundero, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got started in the field, and, and anything else that's interesting. Okay. Um, well, thank you for having me on. And I am um, talking to folks from the land of the sweaty armpit of the United States, uh, a.k.a. Georgia. Uh, <laughs> no, Georgia. Georgia. I'm in the, yes. 
southeast. It's it's just swampy down here. Um, uh, so yeah, I, I bounce around quite a lot, but this is where I've been for a little while now. Setting the stage um, for the conversation. <laughs> We're gonna talk about poop and sweaty armpits. You know, got to be on the same page. Um, yeah. So I started in um, the area of gut microbiome before it was cool. Uh, so I guess I can be like a gut microbiome hipster. I don't like to, you know, people are like expert. I'm like, no, not really. No one knows enough yet, but um, I'll be the gut microbiome hipster because I studied this uh, for my PhD and I finished that back in 2014. So it was sort of uh, a happy accident that brought me into the world of the gut microbiome. I was initially studying the uh, effects of high fat feeding on uh, muscle hypertrophy or lack thereof, so cachexia or muscle wasting. And I had a side project looking at uh, probiotic supplementation and its potential protective role during high-fat feeding. Uh, And the way that that became my main project was that uh, we had some accidents with uh, sample prep in the lab, and so I lost all of the samples from my main project that we needed. And that was after months. We had so many cohorts of mice and everything else went off without a hitch. I mean, it was could not have been a more perfect uh, experimental... uh, I can't make words... Um, experimental protocol and data collection or, and a sample collection. Um, but of course, you know, it happens, that's research. So fortunately we had the side project and that became my main project. So we put multiple cohorts of mice through this study and it looked a lot more like instead of like cool, mean, uh, a lab coat, like pipetting stuff, I was tube feeding mice every day, seven days a week for like a year. So um, that's what probiotics research <laughs> looks like sometimes and collecting a lot of poop um, and a lot of human poop too. Um, so <laughs> we uh, so we were looking at the, uh, as I mentioned, the potential protective role of probiotic supplementation during high fat feeding based on the um, theoretical mechanism that some of the metabolic dysregulation that we see during high fat feeding is uh, regulated by compounds that come from the gut. And so there's uh, this idea that you could potentially have a gut that predisposes you to obesity or metabolic dysregulation or a host of other problems or potential benefits. And so via you know probiotic supplementation, maybe we can correct that or attenuate it in some way. And uh, I came out of that program right into an assistant professorship in exercise science, and I really didn't intend to do much else with it. I really, I, I knew that I wanted to teach from about the age of 20. And so I was like, okay, next step is PhD. And so I went, you know, straight from bachelor's to PhD, do not pass go, do not collect $200. Um, and so I came out of that program fairly young and uh, worked in the exercise science program for um, about four years. And I was primarily teaching sport nutrition and anatomy and phys, uh, which, you know, is the the really horrible weed out program. We got out class and, and, you know, those professors are always the absolute toughest and worst. And um, yeah, I totally fit that stereotype. I was, I was super, super tough, but um, <laughs> so um uh, Mike Isratel of Renaissance Periodization uh, stumbled upon me in the International Society of Sport Nutrition Facebook group, 
And I was, I had like no social media presence. I had like a little blog and I was just this little power lifter. Like this is my pre-workout supplement that I make myself. And, you know, here's my safe weight cut protocol and, uh, you know, posting in the ISSN. And I had, uh, a debate, I guess, with someone on that page and he, um, you know, followed that and appreciated my content and the way that I carried myself, I suppose. And so he recruited me to Renaissance periodization. Uh, so for a year I was, you know, full-time professor and then also coaching on the side. And, um, I w- I did a few seminars that were um, not really RP associated, but, um, because people knew that I was an RP coach, you know, it gave me a little bit more, I guess, leverage in that arena. And, uh, after one of them, I was like, man, you know, this, this is really awesome. I get to, uh, educate folks who are really engaged in the material and there's, you know, such a great dynamic here and people are excited about this and I can, I I really seem to be able to reach people and my clients, you know, it's such fulfilling work and not to say that academia, um, you know, is not ever like that. It can be, but I just felt like I was being, uh, pulled in another direction. And so I ended up after a year resigning uh, from my professorship and went right 100% into coaching, um, which was kind of a a scary move at the time because you go from having, you know, a salary and health insurance and benefits and whatnot, retirement plan to, you know, going out on your own into the wild west of the fitness industry and being an entrepreneur, which I am not like, (laughs) I'm not a business person in any way. And I would do this all for free if that, you know, didn't leave me starving to death living in a box. Um, so yeah, that's, that's how I got into this. And when I resigned and, you know, was going in full time, Mike and I talked about this gap in the industry where we have, you know, um, a lot of emerging data about the gut microbiome and it's very exciting and there's so much potential here. Um, but because there's such a gray area and, and, uh, maybe some difficulty communicating the literature, you know, to the people who want to be able to apply it, there's a lot of misinformation and marketers are sort of capitalizing on that misunderstanding and using it against people to make money off of them. And so, um, that's kind of where I stepped in to be, uh, as best as I can an evidence-based voice and sort of a voice of reason and and kind of disseminating and translating the literature, uh, you know, to the greatest of my ability so that people can be informed and empowered with it rather than being taken advantage of. Yeah. And that at the summit, I think you probably got pelted with the most questions when it came to the gut microbiome. And and some of them were uh, Facebook clicky article type of questions, you know, like, is this, is this going to fix everything uh, a question that I have queued up here is if I get this right, will it make me immortal? You know, people, <laughs> people believe it's like the panacea right now. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and in, in at least my understanding of it, that that's not, we're, we're not there yet. We, we don't have that kind of yeah. information. Um, so I really want to kind of frame this discussion and I want to start with just kind of the basics for people so we can outline and, and get them a good little foundation to start with. So really what is, the microbiome. And one thing that you mentioned during your talk that, that I didn't know is that it actually comes in different sections that, you know, everybody thinks gut health, you know, you have a, a, a biome in, in your large intestine and, and throughout the entire digestive process. So can you outline that for us a little bit and give us a frame of reference to start? 
Yeah. Um, and I do, I want to say one thing about the seminar, which I thought was, um, sort of like tragically funny, but I got, you know, we all got feedback afterwards and some of the feedback was like, well, we didn't get what to do. Like we, you didn't tell us what to do about this. You know, I didn't get like a practical takeaway for like, what are the interventions? And, And it was like, I know, but that's because it's, we're not there yet. So (laughs) yeah, exactly. It's kind of one of those things that I'm like, okay, here's what the data says so far, like do with this what you will, which is probably not a lot right now. Um, so I love that you said that. Yeah. The, the science is just not there yet. Um, so yeah. And, and, um, I think that that was one of the, that's one that people are kind of surprised to hear. And something that I really stress is that, when we talk about the gut microbiome, it's not just one static object that looks the same um, from, you know, mouth to anus. It's very different. Uh, and and we even have, you know, the oral microbiome being separate. Um, so when we're saying words like the microbiome or the microbiota, the microbiota, that refers to all of the microorganisms that would inhabit the area that we're talking about. We have more than just the gut microbiome. And then the microbiome is referring to all of the genetic material. So we have the organisms themselves and we have all of the genes that they could potentially express. And so genes being sort of the uh, the recipe books for proteins and each of those proteins would serve a different function. So we actually have an oral microbiome. We have a skin microbiome. Women have a vaginal microbiome. And then we have the gastrointestinal microbiome running from stomach, small intestine, and large intestine. And then what we usually use in literature to sort of extrapolate and assume assume some things about what's going on in the gut, we have the fecal microbiome. And so each of those populations looks a little bit different due to the environment. So we can think of our stomach. Most of us know that's super acidic. It's sort of it's one of the first lines of defense and fighting off path- pathogens that we might ingest. So there's very uh, a low abundance and a low diversity of microbes because most of them don't do well in a very acidic environment. And then we have the small intestine, and we divide that up into three sections as well. We have the duodenum, jejunum, and ileum. So the duodenum is closest to the stomach. It's still fairly acidic in there. So again, we have fairly low bacterial abundance and diversity. As we move to the more distal end of the small intestine, we start to see that we have uh, less oxygen and less acidity. And so bacterial numbers start to climb a little bit and we have a little bit greater diversity. But where we really see a bloom of uh, abundance and diversity is in the large intestine. So where the small intestine meets the large intestine, that's called the cecum. And that's sort of a hotbed of bacterial uh, proliferation. And then throughout the the large intestine and in the colon uh, or in the distal part of the colon, you know, near the rectum and the anus, that's where we see uh, the greatest abundance and diversity of bacteria uh, or and all all microbes really. Um, and that's the other caveat. This is not just bacteria. It's about 99% bacteria, but we also have some other organisms in there. We've got um, archaea, we've got fungi, including yeasts. Um, and a lot of people are like, oh, yeasts are so bad. No, they actually play an important role in the gut as well. Um, the archaea uh, play a really important functional role in helping to maintain the fermentative capacity of the gut. 
Um, and then we also have viruses there. So they're non-living, but they do play a role in shaping the population because they can infect human cells or bacterial cells. So the majority, about 97 to 99% of our gut microbiome is, is located in the large intestine. And uh, altogether, all of those microbes are a couple pounds of biomass. So we do have a huge amount of just a huge number of bacterial cells. Um, so the number of bacterial cells that we have are about equal to the number of human cells that we have in the body. But the genetic material there outnumbers ours by thousands of times. So, so, so much genetic material. So for us to kind of make statements about, um, you know, ways that we can influence the microbiome, especially when we're, you know, talking about like remodeling it in some way, um, I think we're really taking it a step too far because there's just so much there that we haven't figured out yet at all. Um, and they are... So, so we, you know, they do uh, play an important role also in human physiology. So, as I mentioned, um, defense against pathogens. They help to um, mature our immune system. So that's from really, you know, upon the time of birth all the way um, through adulthood and throughout our lives. They modulate our immune system as well. They can produce um, some nutrients. They can ferment fibers to short-chain fatty acids, and we can use those. And that's actually kind of a big topic in the area of exercise as well. And um, they sort of fight fight with each other as well. They're they're constantly vying for nutrients and for real estate. Real estate, and so they're interacting with each other. They're interacting with our cells. Um, so it is a really complex population, sort of a, a another ecosystem, we could think about it in that way, uh, existing within our bodies. And this is really that, that beneficial type host scenario. And that's, it, you see it in the literature a lot. And it, it took me a little bit to get used to, to see host as, as the subject, <laughs> you know, it's like, Oh, this is the kind of relationship we're talking about here. Um, do you want to touch a little bit on diversity and it's uh, positive role and like what what that really means when it comes to the microbiome? Yeah. So diversity, um, we can look at it in a few different ways, but it generally, generally refers to um, the number of species present and then how uh, their, their relative abundance. So, you know, are we like 60% of one and 40% of another? We can also look at them in terms of their relatedness. So just like on a family tree, are they very similar? Are they dissimilar? We can also look at diversity in terms of the functional diversity. So not just who's there, but also what are they doing? So we can look at gene richness as well as species richness. And what's really interesting is that when we look at um, diversity and we look at sort of the, um, if you could think of this like a snapshot, a family photo of your gut and you're a healthy person in the U.S., uh, your family photo will look very different from the family photo of a person who's in Korea or West Africa or South America. And um, so what the problem that that poses then is that we don't have a specific profile for healthy gut. We have some key uh, taxa, some key groups of bacteria that we know should probably be there. Some of these keystone species that we generally find in relatively high abundance in humans that they uh, they they fill they fill important niches that you know we if, for example like digestive enzymes that we don't produce they will produce for us so we can outsource some of these uh, jobs to them and so we've co-evolved with them for a very long period of time. So when we talk about something like dysbiosis or the uh, unhealthy gut, 
the definition is really muddy and it's really just any difference compared to the healthy control. And and I have to add, it's to the healthy control in that study because uh, the greatest variability that we see is not due to diet, exercise, disease. It's due to just inter-individual variability. So just one person is so different from another person, even though we have this sort of core group of uh, bacteria and organisms that should be there, about two-thirds of it is just specific to you as an individual. So it's very difficult to, uh, to characterize a healthy gut or an unhealthy slash dysbiotic gut. And even within the same disease, we don't see the same patterns emerging every time. So what we can say at best is that when we're talking about um, diversity, even, even just looking at who's there doesn't give us a great picture. And instead, it's probably more important to look at what they can do. Because that's one thing that does seem to be emerging fairly consistently, is that in individuals who have a disease or in individuals who have obesity, um, that it's not necessarily who's there that changes consistently each time, but we tend to see a reduction in gene richness. So that means there's reduced functional capacity or a reduced expression. So they're not, even if the genes are there, they're not being expressed. So that may be more characteristic. They're, like The true dysbiosis may not be in just the taxonomy, but in the functionality of the gut. This makes a lot of sense because when we're looking at sort of the contribution of different microbes to the overall gut functionality. In some cases, we see that those with even very low relative abundance, um, like some of the archaea, you know, that comprise less than 1% of all of the uh, organisms present, that they have a huge, they play a huge role in the fermentative capacity the fermentative capacity of the gut. So without those guys, even though they're very low in number, the entire functionality of the gut would be significantly affected. And so I think it is important that we keep that in mind, you know, that even if we're changing um, the relative abundance of species, we don't necessarily know that we're changing the function in an appreciable way. And that um, that uh, concept is fairly new, and they're, they've called that functional convergence. So even if we're looking at two people who have very different uh, taxonomic profiles, the function will still be fairly similar. So we just conserve those um, across time, which is good because like it would be really problematic if you were to lose just you know one group of bacteria and then like the whole thing goes to pot and you know, nothing works anymore. Yeah, that would suck. Uh, <laughs> I've got a couple questions and I don't know if they're related at all, but almost taking a step back and, uh, defining dysbiosis mm -hmm. or at least maybe defining it physiologically and also how that manifests or how we would identify that clinically. Oh and, yeah. That, yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll stop there then. <laughs> That's a very good question. Um, yeah, so, uh, you know, as I mentioned, like the, the definition of dysbiosis is really just any difference compared to the healthy controls. So uh, dysbiosis could be an overabundance of potentially pathogenic species. It could be um, a lower representation of potentially beneficial species, or it could be a little bit of both. 
and how that might manifest in clinical practice. Well, what's really interesting is that we don't really, so if you, if you were to look, I'll start with the gut. So, um, just as a caveat though, like the, the, the preview to what I'm going to say, there probably will not be symptoms that you could identify clinically, um, you know, from how a person is feeling. So if we look at the gut itself, we can look at the, uh, anatomy and physiology of the gastrointestinal tract. So, do we have uh, healthy villi? So all of the folds that we see in the small intestine um, to increase surface area and absorption. Uh, do we have the mucus layer? So we should have a double mucus layer in the large intestine. And do we have intestinal cells that are um, uh, held tightly together uh, via tight junction proteins? So some of the, those are some of the characteristic things that one might look at. So you could have damage to the epithelial wall that causes low uh, villocyte or damage to those cells. You could have a reduction in the thickness of that mucus layer, and that means that there's less protection, there's less space between the microbes in the lumen and the intestinal cells and the immune cells beneath. And you may also see either a downregulation or destruction of those tight junction proteins. So the cells are not held tightly together and substances can pass through them. And we call that intestinal permeability or leaky gut. Now you can indirectly or directly measure some of these things. In humans, we're generally indirectly measuring uh, intestinal permeability. And there are a few different uh, ways we can do that. You could look at uh, uh, fecal zonulin. So that's a protein that downregulates tight junction proteins. So you could look at that as a marker. You could use a dual sugar test. So you have a person ingest um, two different types of sugars, a mono and a disaccharide, and then you measure clearance into the blood. And that can give you an idea of um, small intestine or large intestine permeability, depending on the sugars that you're using. You could also look at some markers that might be associated with a disease state like fecal calprotectin is one of the things that we, you would measure to look for the presence of inflammatory bowel disease. Um, now, quite often, these markers of intestinal permeability may correlate with gastrointestinal distress uh, in athletes as part of exercise-induced gastrointestinal syndrome. But in folks who are just not you know, active to the extent that it would cause any intestinal permeability, you're not really going to have any outward signs of intestinal permeability. A lot of the things you would think might correlate with it, like people talk about, um, you know, gas, bloating, um, diarrhea, something like that. Those markers are actually not associated with intestinal permeability. They, they may happen at the same time. They may not. There's just real, there's no strong correlation between those. But there are some risks for intestinal permeability. And those would include um, uh, uh, the presence of type 2 diabetes or gestational diabetes, uh, BMI above 25, um, eating a standard American diet. <laughs> um, so those things may increase your the odds of you experiencing intestinal permeability, but you still would not have outward symptoms of the intestinal permeability. Now, intestinal permeability is something even that's separate from dysbiosis. And how do we know if we have dysbiosis? Well, that becomes 
really, really difficult to determine. How could we see who's in the gut? Well, what me, what people most of the time do is take uh, a, a stool test and they analyze that. Now, of course, there are some fun, like, over, I want to say like over the counter, like, you know, GI map tests and things like that, that aren't necessarily, you know, validated. They're not clinical tests. They're giving you an idea of the uh, abundance and, and representation of species in your uh, uh, feces. But drawing from, you know, the knowledge of the gut microbiome is not static from one end of the GI tract to the other. And that quite often in those fecal samples, we're seeing just luminal contents. That means that we're missing uh, a, a large portion that we don't, we can't quantify, but we know that we're missing out on a large portion of the population there because there are bacteria that are uh, mucosal associated. So they're actually hanging out uh, right in that uh, mucose, uh, right in that protective mucus layer, the top layer, and probably more closely associating with our intestinal cells and our immune cells. So we really want to know what's going on with those guys as well, and we're really missing out on that. So these fecal samples are just they're they're really a separate sample from what we would get if we went and did uh, a, a luminal mucosal uh, sort of sample, which can be done, but it's just very invasive because now you're talking about you know colonoscopy type procedures to go in there and take samples um, from the lumen, the mucosa, or the cecum. But they have done that in humans, and they and and so it is possible. But again, it's just very invasive, and it's not too common. Now, once again, you're not going to have necessarily outward symptoms of dysbiosis because dysbiosis and um, the microbes uh, that we're looking at has not that have those those haven't been causally linked to any disease outcome. It's just that we tend to see that in individuals who have a disease, they look different from the individuals who don't have that disease, but we're not able to then say, oh, it's this microbe that caused this disease. It's usually just, well, we we tend not to see so many of these and we probably should, but we have to be very careful about, you know, developing correlate uh, causation when there's only a correlation. So uh, unfortunately, you know, at this point, we don't really have uh, clinical tests that we could use to sort of diagnose dysbiosis. It's not a diagnosis at this point. And even though we can, you know, undergo indirect markers of intestinal uh, permeability, that again is not something that will necessarily have clinical relevance. It's something that can certainly occur after a bout of exercise. And um, that's probably, you know, the most applicable to your audience. And there are ways to, to go about managing that. Um, but it's, it's not super sexy. I'll give you, I'll say that ahead of time. You know, these recommendations are always like, oh, it's so, it's just pretty much the basics. I'm like, yeah, that's where we are right now. I think some of the, the, the causation point that you bring up adds a whole lot of confusion. Cause if you see some type of, of, uh, disease process and you're like, oh, this is also correlated with a, with a altered microbiome then mm-hmm. when we retest, let's say that disease process is gone, does the microbiome then normalize? Is there any data on that? Mm-hmm. We're looking at disease processes from start to finish. Um, so there are changes to the profile, um, for example, in individuals who have an inflammatory bowel disease, um, in those who are in an active flare versus in remission. Um, and 
there have been studies looked at changes in response to um, new, uh, dietary interventions in individuals with obesity. So the diet itself has an independent effect. And so you can see changes to the microbiome in response to the diet before weight loss has occurred. Um, but the, the thing is, we don't know, you know, necessarily what the clinical outcomes would be from those changes. And we have that, this chicken versus egg problem where we don't know if the disease, you know, causes the changes to the microbiome or the microbiome progresses disease states. Um, but it does, a, it, it, I think that we're starting to, because we keep seeing patterns emerge with just very specific taxa, that I think we're at least starting to say, okay, probably like these groups still not a causative, but maybe it gives us a little bit more of a clue for a potential intervention. Um, so like acromancia mucinophilia is one that we tend to see um, change pretty consistently with various diseases. And it's one that's considered to be beneficial. Um, or with, you know, long-term fiber deficient diets that happen to be associated with deleterious health outcomes, we tend to see reductions in bifidobacteria and that's another beneficial one. Um, so I think that that may, I mean, it's, it's emerging. It, we may be able to, um, get to that point eventually, but yeah, it is, it's really just a chicken versus egg problem. And even if we do see changes to the microbiome, we don't know necessarily that it's just because of the disease regression or improvement, because we also have to look at what did we do to help improve, um, you know, the progression of this disease or to resolve it. So jump in on that point, how well do you think um, that is conveyed or the accuracy of those points are conveyed in, I don't know, say main mainstream media outlets when it comes to these sorts of topics? Because, I mean, I can think of some family members who tend to like to watch <laughs> documentaries on TV about this stuff. And yeah. it's been a long time since I've seen one. So I don't know if they're saying these things are correlated or if they're saying this causes that disease. But it seems like the effect at the end of it is still like, well, the microbiome is linked to that thing. So we need to do X, Y, and Z to prevent that thing. So, I mean, with, with your position in this field, do you get a lot of people coming to you saying, hey, I, I heard that the microbiome functioning this way leads to this disease process? And then how, I don't know, how, how easy or difficult do you find that it is to have conversations with those people to try to say it's not nearly that cut and dry as of right now? Oh man, that brings to mind a, a recent headline I saw. Your gut microbiome predicts how likely you are to die in the next 15 years. Oh. And I was like, no, <laughs> no, it doesn't. We're not there yet. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, I reading the, the um, I have to go and, you know, read the uh, actual article, the primary source first, but I just went and read, you know, just the media article because I was so curious. And it was something like, you know, they were looking at um, all of these other factors and, you know, predicting like death in the next 15 years or like looking forward, you know, who, who dies in the next 15 years. Um, and it was like, it was 15% more accurate than a bunch of these other measures, but it was like, okay, 15% more accurate on, on top of something that was probably very, not very accurate to begin with. That doesn't mean that your microbiome, like, you know, you go get your GI map test and it's like, uh, you got 10 years left, you know, but like that's, that's the way that it's, uh, 
promoted. And um, I think also, you know, to be fair, like people want to, they want interventions, which is totally understandable. You know, they want to know that this is something that they can exert control over in some way. And I think what we really lose sight of also is that, you know, yeah, there are certainly things, there are certainly interventions that have a measurable and reproducible effect on the gut. Um, But we also have to look at the magnitude of effect. So if we're talking about thousands of species and we influence two of them, that might be really cool. It might mean something, but it could also mean that, you know, we're only influencing those two species. And then as a whole, the ecosystem itself stays relatively stable. And that's what we really see in longitudinal studies that for the most part, regardless of what you do, things stay stable. And even if you do undergo some sort of dietary exercise intervention, um, if you stop that, obviously things will go back to baseline. But sometimes, even after months of that intervention, things still go back to baseline. So, you know, the, the extent to which we can actually exert any influence on that population is still, I think, remains to be seen. And at this point, seems pretty minimal. But it just so happens that a lot of the things that people want to do in order to shape their microbiome, they, they tend to be healthful things. So that's great. I'm like, if you want to now suddenly eat a lot of vegetables and, you know, partake in more physical activity, like, okay, yeah, let's do that for the sake of your gut microbiome. And like, also you'll just by accident being eating more vegetables and, you know, exercising more. So it's like the, I think the intentions behind it are really good. And so I want to, you know, promote those behaviors, but I also want to keep people informed. So they're not, you know, spending lots of money on things that are completely invalid, like the IgG food sensitivity test or something like that, you know, trying to look for a problem that isn't there. Hey guys, Quinn Hennick here. Consider this a little brain break from our really interesting discussion with Dr. Gabrielle Fondero about the gut microbiome and other poop-related concepts. You see, I'm just taking every opportunity to say the word poop on the show. You've probably heard, but just in case you haven't, Clinical Athlete is teaming up with the Level Up Initiative and putting together the first ever Cal Summit on September 19th, 2020 in Boston, Massachusetts. We decided to come together on this because, let's face it, Clinical practice is hard, and conflicting information can leave you feeling lost. With the endless amount of research and dogmas, clinicians may feel frustrated and confused about how to help their patients. The CALU Summit is your solution to help you gain confidence and clarity with key rehab principles, including exercise prescription, pain science, and communication. We're centering these concepts around three common clinical cases that you may encounter, ACL reconstruction, low back pain, and tendinopathy. Gain confidence in your clinical practice and find your path to success and hang out with a bunch of badass providers from our communities. For more information on the summit, head over to kalusummit.com. That's C-A-L-U summit.com. You can also find the link in the show notes. Hope to see you there. And now back to the show. I think it's a good, a good time here to also take a little bit of scientific responsibility and explain, like you, you mentioned, you saw that article and you're going to chase down the primary article. And there are times where I've seen, you know, study says, and you go to the primary article and it's about mice getting like a fecal transplant that you had mentioned before. Like, is that necessarily 
applicable to humans? Have we been able to reproduce it? And we need to be really careful extrapolating that out into a different population. Like, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure you've probably seen that quite a few times. Are there other examples that, that you can think of there? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Artificial sweeteners, for sure. Um, You know, if you want to show that artificial sweeteners are really harmful, do your test in cell culture. If you want to look for, you know, mechanistic data, um, then you might use a rodent model because the benefit. So, you know, a, a rodent gastrointestinal tract is very different from a human gastrointestinal tract. And even if we use... um. Uh, specific, um, I can't think of the word now, but when we take a, a fecal transplant from a human and we put that into a mouse and we give that mouse a human-like gut microbiome, the relative abundance is still not the same. It's not equivalent to a human microbiome because these bacteria rely on the environment and the environment in a mouse gut is different from what we see in a human gut. So we can use that for mechanistic data, though, to some extent, because we can sacrifice those mice at the end of it and take out sections of their gastrointestinal tract and take out their skeletal muscle and look at things, um, you know, uh, from a cell signaling angle. But if you want to see what effect something will have in humans, you really have to do it in humans. The closest uh, surrogate would be pigs. So we do have, you know, porcine studies um, are are not as common because it's very expensive and whatnot, but that's kind of the second best. Their gastrointestinal tracts are very close to humans. Um, but, you know, the amount of rodent data that we have far outweighs that of what we have in, in pigs or even in humans. Um, but yeah, so with artificial sweeteners, you know, in cells, significant negative effects, significant damage, significantly damaging effects. In rodents, well, we can give them super physiological doses and still um, exert some pretty negative effects and show that like, wow, artificial sweeteners are really bad for you and can cause cancer and seem to be really bad for the microbiota as well. And then when you take that out into humans uh, at doses that are physiologically relevant, well, then we usually don't see much of anything. Um, but that that being said, have there been some studies that have shown something in, some things in humans? Yes, but then we have to look at things like study design. Well, if there is no control group or you had a very small end size, you, know, you had three or four individuals, we can't then really readily extrapolate that to, um, you know, the rest of humanity. So we always have to keep that in mind that we're looking at, you know, just samples. Um, and what I find really funny is that, you know, we will have like, these huge meta-analyses that have tens of thousands of participants and people will be like, well, I don't know if I really buy that. Uh, you know, these studies are funded. And then you get like one <laughs> study on artificial sweeteners and like three people and people are like, I knew artificial sweeteners were evil. And I'm like, oh, the cognitive dissonance there. Um, so, so yeah, so I try to be very, um, pragmatic and, um, you know, cautious in my recommendations and my statements and try to deliver them with context. You know, even if I, sometimes I get excited about stuff and I know that I have like my biases for, you know, I'm I'm big into vegetables and fiber. Um, but I, I'm, I still try to keep an open mind and I look at, um, studies that might contradict what I think and, you know, talks that might contradict what I think, because, um, I believe that it's important to be able to, argue for both sides, you know, keep your mind open, but not so open that stuff falls out. Yeah. Going back to that article that you read on, um, well, shit, 
My mind is blanking. What was the, you, the, you read the media article? Yes, yes, fifteen percent. Yes, or, yeah, I can tell if your your microbiome tells you you're going to die in yes, fifteen yes, yes. years. We're getting so, nocebo through our poop. That's so <laughs> sorry. So yeah, did was there was there a yogurt uh, ad at the bottom of that article? So and I I'm joking, but my next question asks: What are probiotics? Uh. And well, we can go there. We can just stop there. But what do they do? What do they not do? Because I hear that that term is thrown around. Oh, yeah. In this as far as this realm, probably mm-hmm. more than any other that I hear. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because probiotics are sort of, you know, that it's like if you want to get like a, a targeted attack, you know, you want to change the bacteria, you got to eat the bacteria and then, you know, you get some some magic out of that. Um, so probiotics. So we've got probiotics, prebiotics, symbiotics, and postbiotics because we just keep adding more biotics. And antibiotics? Um, no, that's different. And antibiotics. Okay. Well, kind of, yeah, it's still it's related. Um, so a probiotic is a microorganism that you ingest, which confers some benefit to the host. Um, they, it used to be that, uh, they were identified as live microorganisms. Now we don't know they, we know they don't necessarily have to be alive to exert some effect. So they can be heat killed. Um, we also now have spore forming, um, probiotics. So these are from bacteria that exist in sort of a dormant state. They have great survivability through the highly acidic stomach, um, and they can exert some effect once they reach the intestines. So that's probiotic organism that you ingest. Prebiotic is a nutrient source for the organisms. And those organisms may be the ones that are already in your gut, the commensals, or, you know, if you wanted to take a probiotic organism, that could certainly utilize the prebiotic uh, energy as well. And so these prebiotics really could be any nutrient that that passes through the small intestine and reaches the large intestine. But most often we're talking about uh, microbe accessible carbohydrates. So these are uh, mostly fibers that we cannot digest. And because they're not accessible to us in the small intestine, they reach the large intestine where they can be fermented, uh, really releasing energy for the bacteria, and then uh, potentially short chain fatty acids for us. And then we have symbiotics. So that's when you take a pre and a probiotic together and they formulate these. They'll have like an inulin or something in them. Uh, And then postbiotics are the products of the bacterial fermentation that confer some benefit to the host. So an example of that would be the short chain fatty acids like butyrate is the postbiotic. Um, You can take butyrate, you can take propionate um, as supplements. You also find them naturally occurring as short chain fatty acids in the diet. Um, so those are, uh, the big iotic words. And then obviously we have antibiotics used to, to kill bacteria. Um, and those are actually produced by bacteria also. So bacteria can, um, produce antimicrobial compounds to, uh, control each other's numbers as well. So probiotics, that is, you know, and if I feel like if anyone should be like, yeah, probiotics, maybe it should be me because that's what I did in my, uh, for my dissertation was study probiotics. And like, I was really interested in them and I thought, wow, this is an area like that seems to have so much opportunity, um, and potential for, you know, interventions and improving human health and whatnot. Um, not to say that they don't have applications. We do have some pretty compelling data in certain areas, but, 
the realm of probiotics research is so problematic for a few reasons. One, pretty much every study is done with a different methodology. So you have different strains of bacteria being fed to different populations in differing amounts for different reasons, you know, whereas if we're looking at something like creatine supplementation, like we've got lots of reproduced creatine supplementation data in similar um, populations with similar effects. So we can be really confident about like, when do you take it? How much do you take it? What can you expect from it? And we just haven't really been able to um, do that with a lot of probiotics. The other thing is uh, the effects of probiotics are strain specific. So when we look at, um, you know, how, how we classify organisms in terms of taxonomy, uh, we used to really talk more at the phyla level. So it was looking at like vertebrates versus invertebrates, bacteroidetes versus formicutes, so general. And we now know that the rate, you know, we used to say, oh, your B to F ratio, that really predicts like obesity propensity. Like not really. Um, and then we can get down to the genus and species level. And that's pretty similar. So now we're looking at like canids, like dogs, foxes, jackals, dingoes, and we can get more and more specific down to species, dogs versus dingoes. This is the one they use all the time because everyone knows what a dog is and everyone knows what a dingo is. And like, yeah, I think that like some people can domesticate dingoes, but like <laughs> for for the most, like, you know, for like the standard American house pet, like you're probably going to want to pick a dog. Um, and, and then, you know, not everyone needs to have a dog. Not everyone needs this the the same type of dog. So it's the same thing with probiotics. It's the effects are strain specific. So it's it's not uncommon that you might see a strain like lactobacillus rhamnosus GG. This strain seems to be very effective for pediatric diarrhea. So like if you have like we there's replicable uh, ped studies looking at oh this is really helpful for kids who have diarrhea. Super. But if you give it to like an athlete or any other adult, it does like nothing. So, you know, do we say that that probiotic is not effective? No, it has effects, but in a specific um, population for a specific thing. And it's the same thing when we're looking at um, uh, uh, Saccharomyces. So it's a yeast that is uh, seems to be uh, consistently beneficial for uh, adults with diarrhea associated with antibiotics or traveling. Um and there are some other strains of uh, lactobacillus and bifidobacteria like Brevis, Animalis. Those seem to be consistently beneficial for some things. Um, and then, you know, in the role in the realm of athletes, um, this is another one where it just we don't have a lot of evidence and a lot of strong evidence. Um, and unfortunately, where we do have replicated studies, sometimes they're just from the same lab. And I think that it's important that we're that other labs are also able to replicate those studies. Um, so we can't say that like, oh, there's one that's like two studies have shown reductions in delayed onset muscle soreness. Well, it's from the same lab. So if we're looking at the same lab with the same, you know, population, can we really say that that's like two pieces of evidence? I don't know. I guess that I, I leave that up to people how they want to use it. But um, I'm just I tend to be like very skeptical. So when we're looking at, you know, where can we use probiotic supplementation? Pretty much if you have diarrhea, if you have an inflammatory bowel disease, if you have irritable bowel syndrome, um, or if you're a child and you have diarrhea, 
there's probably a probiotic strain that you could use in conjunction with other lifestyle things that might help to reduce your symptoms. Or if you're an athlete, there are some strains that seem to be helpful for reducing the incidence of upper respiratory tract infection. Um, but aside from that, you know, when people, how do people really want to use them to lose weight, to perform better, um, to, to, for, for mood, we really just don't have the evidence or we have evidence that it's, that they're not effective for those things. Uh, and then the other issue is that when we look at um, you know, meta-analyses and systematic reviews, sometimes they'll say like, yes, probiotics were effective for this thing, but they're looking at a bunch of different probiotics and some of them weren't effective. So it's like, if we were to just say like, uh, do sports supplements improve performance? And as a whole, a lot of them on the market don't. So we might say no and then miss out on the fact like, oh, actually creatine is pretty effective. Um, caffeine's pretty effective. So it really also depends on what we're including in that analysis. Um, and it's just hard to do that. So that's why I think it's important to, you know, I always fall back on those uh, larger analyses. But then if I find something that I'm like, now, this is curious, like this is unusual or, you know, I really want to pare down, then, you know, go down the realm and like find the individual randomized control trials and see if you can uh, paint yourself a clearer picture of what's going on. Well, that probably leads us into the unsexy actual recommendations because <laughs> it, it looked like you gave us a lot to read. You, you did. And, know. you know, it, but it's, it's fine. I, I actually really liked it. And I started with the Monda paper. The mm -hmm. review article. And if anybody yeah. is listening and wants to know, that was exercise modifies the gut microbiota with positive health effects. It was a review article. Mm -hmm. And just the way it was written, it was it was much more digestible for me. That's how I know I'm a dad. I just hit you with a dad joke and I didn't even realize <laughs> it's coming out. Yeah. Yeah, that's smooth. Sorry. Oh. You're not though. Wow. I'm not at all. <laughs> not at all. But it, it seemed like if you look at a lot of the reviews that a, a healthful diet and regular exercise seem to be pretty good indicators of diversity and all the things that we at least link with a positive kind of microbiome. Um, mm -hmm. Is that is that kind of what a lot of the evidence is showing and, and what the suggestion would be? It's just, hey, diet and exercise. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's what it is because we we have – we can pretty confidently say that – physical fitness level. Um, and they are generally using like, you know, VO2 max. So you're looking at cardiovascular fitness tends to correlate with increased microbial diversity and specifically enrichment of butyrate producers and just that from, uh, you know, the fermentation capacity of the gut. So, uh, how many of these do we have? And then how much butyrate can we actually produce? And then butyrate has a number of positive health benefits, uh, helps with, uh, insulin sensitivity, appetite regulation, um, tight junction protein regulation. So butyrate itself seems to be, uh, really beneficial. So yeah, increased levels of cardiovascular fitness, probably a good thing. Um, athletes tend to, uh, also have kind of just higher energy availability and they postulate that maybe it could also be due to increased carbohydrate intake, that they tend to see higher levels of some of these butyrate producers, bifidobacteria, Prevotella was really big a couple years ago. Now we've got this uh, Valinella who appears to consume lactate as its sole carbon source and it spits out propionate. And if you give a mouse a propionate enema, it, it, it improves its exercise performance. 
Um, so just basically the, you know, the, some of the effects of exercise on the microbiome and vice versa, that seems to have sort of a, a reciprocal, um, relationship. And so we see benefits from physical activity. And then we also see benefits from having a diet with plenty of microbe accessible carbohydrates. Now, you know, proponents of the carnivore diet will say, oh, well, we don't need fiber, um, or, you know, fiber in diverticulitis because they, you know, incorrectly assume causation where there's correlation. Um, so can we make, uh, some of these short chain fatty acids from, uh, animal products from amino acids? Yes. But this is another thing that's pretty consistently shown that if you have a diet that does not have enough fiber, that you may see a thinning of the mucus layer and that you'll generally see reductions in microbial diversity. And even in athletes, um, in bodybuilders and, and cross-country runners uh, who are physically active, a really low-fiber, high-fat diet uh, doesn't seem to uh, overcome come the benefits of exercise. So basically you, they say you like, you can't outrun a bad diet. Like you can't out train a lack of fiber. You still need the fiber. You still need the, the substrates for those bacteria. Um, and then, you know, one area that I think a lot of people would struggle with is in endurance athletes that they're experiencing pretty severe GI distress. And that's sort of a special group. If you have you know, athletes who are endurance or ultra endurance athletes, that they tend to experience increased intestinal permeability, um, severe gastrointestinal distress, and even low-grade um, endotoxemia. So that's sort of like the the level, if, if sepsis is a level 10, endotoxemia can be maybe like a level one or two. So it's still not ideal. And again, the interventions recommended there are maintaining euhydration, having a carbohydrate-containing beverage during exercise, probably limiting and timing fermentable fibers, you know, away from exercise and um, trying not to exercise in extreme heat. And then just realizing if you're one of the, the pop, if you're part of a population that might be at greater risk, um, if you are uh, female and if you have a, a history of gastrointestinal distress related to exercise, or if you have something like um, IBS, that you may be more likely to experience some of that gastrointestinal distress. But once again, um, and that's an area where probiotics really don't seem to help much at all. And they may actually exacerbate symptoms, especially in females. So really it's like, like you said, it's not super sexy stuff. It just comes down to diet, physical activity, um, you know, maintaining proper hydration levels, fueling properly during exercise, trying to be prudent about when you're exercising. And then um, there really is a dose and magnitude dependent response. So making sure that you're, you know, prioritizing rest as well and that you're not just running for the sake of running, that you're doing it, you know, if it's going to be longer than an hour or two, there probably should be good reason for that. You hear that, John? If you're going to run for an hour, like you always do. <laughs> so I, I've, I've started uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu back up, and there's like mm. a 10-minute warm-up where mm -hmm. you have to like run and do a little. I I nearly died. <laughs> that means you're in good powerlifting shape. Yeah. It's, hey, <laughs> it's going to carry me through a meet. And <laughs> look, look, there's not a lot of this research done on strength athletes, but I am going to go to them and be like, you need to do your cardio so your gut health can be better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Done. They, then you will die in 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, um, you know, because we have the knowledge of this sort of dose dependent and magnitude dependent response of gastrointestinal distress being um, above 70% VO2 max, especially while running, uh, I should point that out, that that seems to be the most um, exacerbatory uh, for longer than an hour, um, especially in, you know, with heat stress or dehydration, uh, we have that sort of cutoff, but we also have some other, uh, important and, you know, potentially beneficial cutoffs, I'll say. So if we're looking at exercise that's lasting less than an hour and it's about 60% VO2 max, we can still obtain cardiovascular benefits without uh, that increased risk of gastrointestinal distress. And in fact, that type of exercise, that sort of moderate intensity exercise can actually enhance GI motility. So if a person is feeling a little bit constipated, then they might be able to just go out and like have, you know, a leisurely relaxing bout of endurance exercise for 30 minutes. And that could alleviate some of the constipation. And it also keeps it very attainable for us. So, you know, if we do want to um, uh, institute sort of a whole regimen of, you know, gut health support, even though I, I use gut health very carefully because it's such a, uh, an abused term, but, you know, things like eating vegetables regularly, making sure that we have plenty of micro accessible carbohydrates and fiber, um, engaging in regular physical activity, you know, even if we're looking at, uh, you know, one study looked at women who were meeting the World Health Organization recommendations for exercise or not. Um, So sedentary versus lightly active versus highly active, you know, just meeting those recommendations seems to increase microbial, uh, it seems to correlate with increased microbial diversity and butyrate production. So it keeps it very accessible, very obtainable that we can do these things and we don't have to buy super expensive supplement or go through some sort of special gut health protocol. You can just eat a lot of vegetables, get plenty of fiber and engage in physical activity. Um, and, and those seem to be the really the, just the corn, that's the cornerstone of, you know, gastrointestinal health. And as we start to exceed those things, we are an ultra endurance athlete. Um, you know, the guys and I were just saying like, you have to assume risk there. Like you realize that you may have some gastrointestinal symptoms and there may be some actual damage occurring to the gastrointestinal tract as a result of that, um, you know, really hardcore, vigorous, long-term endurance exercise. And then being very careful about, you know, um, including some of the things that we can do to mitigate that. Any data on sleep deprivation and the gut? Mm. So they have done a little bit in rodents looking at sort of circadian rhythm disruption, but they haven't really been able to replicate that in humans. Um, but what's interesting is that there are circadian, there's a sort of a circadian rhythmicity to bacterial growth in the gut. Uh, so during the day, we, we tend to see an increase in Firmicutes, um, which is not so surprising because a lot of the lactobacilli that's part of the Firmicutes group are in the small intestine. And so that's when we have nutrients being delivered to the small intestine and they can use some of those that they can, you know, grab before we get to them. And then um, during times of fasting overnight, we see increases of bacteroidetes. And that also makes sense because we're going to see uh, more nutrient delivery to the large intestine. Um, But some of that could also be just because we have so, so so many more bacteria in the large intestine than we do the small intestine, like that we're looking at that, that's just going to be so much, it's going to be a, a magnified change, so to speak. 
So um, that lends itself to the idea of, you know, some credence to chrononutrition and the benefits of a normal sleep wake cycle, being awake during the daylight hours, being asleep at night, um, because it could, you know, correlate with what we see with circadian disruption in humans. So sleep deprivation obviously leads to reduced performance, uh, immunosuppression, dysregulated appetite, and the gastrointestinal tract and the microbiome both as, as sort of like independent of one another. We have, you know, hormones related, released from gastrointestinal cells, and we also have some interplay there between the microbiome um, and the nervous system that they all interact to sort of regulate and influence appetite and hunger. So I would say that, you know, that that probably is going to be coming out in the next couple of years. I'm sure we'll learn a lot, a lot more about um, the effects of sleep deprivation. Uh, but what we're seeing right now is just sort of, you know, people are looking like intermittent fasting and things like that. And that's another area that where we don't have very much data, but at least we've been able to identify like, Hey, we have this sort of rhythmicity and bacterial growth. We have to keep that in mind when we're doing these fasting studies, because some of it could just be normal rhythmicity and bacterial growth, having nothing to do with our fasting protocol. Yeah. A lot of so, moving parts. Yeah. Yes. Pretty, pretty complex. This, this. <laughs> microbiome thing yeah people love to yeah. simplify it on the internets but i don't i don't think that's really possible it's almost like there's nuance or something <laughs> i know that's well, what i was saying like there's context and nuance like i can't it's hard for me to give like definitive answers without a lot of other stuff it's like well here's what i'm saying but here's also why i'm saying it and uh you know and i and i mean and each of these areas is its own kind of like discrete area of study you know, I looked at skeletal muscle metabolism. That's really like the focus of my dissertation, microbiome, skeletal muscle metabolism. But you can look at hepatic, you can look at adipose, you can look at nervous system. Like there are so many you know, immune systems, so many different areas, which is why I'm like, I can't think of it. Like I'm not an expert because like there's too much to know. <laughs> well, and you gave the, uh, the example of, of creatine. And now you have, so you have creatine, which is this inert substance and and even then, its effect on the body is extremely dynamic. You have yeah. many factors that go into what, how you're going to respond and, and what what subsystems are going to respond. But now we're talking about an entire ecosystem in and of itself interacting with itself. Then how that's going to interact and and to the to the trillionth degree where we're talking about microbes. Yes. This my yes. my mind was just blowing. When you were uh, describing these things, because of I don't know how you study. <laughs> I study just like this much of it. <laughs> well, and the cool thing that I think blew my mind is when you're talking to the summit, talking about some of this bacteria kind of taking over some of the duties that we would normally see our body doing: RNA transcription, DNA transcription, and mm -hmm. and you know proliferating certain. Uh, processes in the body and all of a sudden you realize this is this is there's a lot going on here and mm -hmm. when you see a clickbaity title you have to look at it and be like ah <laughs> it's probably more than than just that this isn't the panacea people are kind of making it out to be because it's mm -hmm. just so young when it comes yeah. to the amount of data mm-hmm 
Yeah, I think in the past, um, uh, Patrice Connie, he's one of sort of the founding fathers of this literature. Um, and one of the first names that I remember remembering because his lab coined the term metabolic endotoxemia, which was sort of the crux of my whole um, dissertation proposal. Um, but, you know, he, he recently did sort of just an editorial piece on the, the hopes, threats and promises of the gut microbiome saying like, hey, let's not um, apply causation where there's only correlation. And I want to say that it was in the past um, five or so years that we've seen like 80% of the publications of the microbiome come out because it, it, it's been an absolutely exponential increase. I mean, I don't look like when I finished, no one knew what the microbiome was. No one cared. I didn't have anyone to talk about my projects with. Um, and now it's just like this, this huge hot topic. It's really interesting to see. It's got that snowball effect going now. Yeah. Social media will do that to some things too. Mm -hmm. it, like you said, it, as soon as somebody links it with weight loss. Whew. Oh yeah. Yeah. That fecal microbiome transplant. Yeah, exactly. Oh, like that was going to be the that was going to be the next thing, you know. Like they they did wow. that in mice, and it was like, oh well, we can make um, lean mice obese, and vice versa. And you know, this is going to happen in humans. And guess what? They've done that in humans. And guess what? It didn't do anything. <laughs> like Sorry. then it's not. Yeah, no poop transplants for well, us. I can I can start like getting rid of my fit friends' poop. I've been collecting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, if you've been if you've been saving that in your freezer, just you know you can donate it or something. Like, um, yeah, it's not going to do you any good, unfortunately. Or like, you know, there's going to be probiotics now. It's going to be like, well, I don't know, like the the LeBron James like probiotic, and it's just like <laughs> oh they sequenced God, the his designer. microbiome, and now yes, exactly. Oh, oh, oh yeah, oh, I remember man. being asked about that. Like, do you think we're going to have designer microbiomes? Like, oh, I don't know, maybe like much later. But it's it's a lot. It's like you know, um, when we were looking at like genomic stuff, like oh. Oh, that's going to be the next thing. We're going to do like personalized nutrition based on your genes. Um, and then we're like, oh, wait, actually, your microbiome is a better predictor of some things than your genes. And that actually does appear to be true. Um, so that's kind of interesting because it's like we just keep we, we try to like simplify ourselves too much, you know, and we're like, oh, here's this button I can push and I get an output. And it's like, no, we're complex systems. That's not how this works. I'm not over the designer probiotic. Lactobacillus <laughs> by Gucci. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So any any closing thoughts before we, we sign off here? Oh, for me? Yeah, yeah for oh, you. I, I, I was waiting for you guys to ask me another question. Um, oh, I would just say, you know, I I want to encourage people to um, sort of ignore the, the current message of you being broken in some way, like we need to heal the gut or reset the gut or detox the gut. Um, you know, that alone, it is such a moneymaker and it is really, um, an insidious message that I think seeps its way into a lot of different, you know, not just in the area of gut health, but in the area of, you know, weight loss and fitness and things like that. We have this sort of, um, you know, no pain, no gain thing. And like, if there's a pro, if there's not a problem, I'll make one so that I can sell you something to fix it. And, um, it really does consistently come back to the basics when we're talking about 
gut health and most other things, you know, making sure that your nutrition and training and sleep and stress management are all in order. Uh, that's really probably the best you can do. And if you want to do it, like I said, you know, from a gut health perspective, great. And then you'll accidentally be eating a super nutritious diet. And that's, you know, um, I, I think it was when I was on with, um, uh, Greg Knuckles and Eric Trexler, I think he said he, he, that's what he used to tell people when they're like, Oh, nitrates, like, Oh, that's so exciting. Should I be supplementing? And he's like, well, you know, lots of vegetables are high in them. So you could just eat lots of vegetables and that would be good for you also. It's boring. <laughs> I know. Right. It's not sexy enough. People want to, want to know like what special supplements they should be taking and whatnot. And it's like, mm, no, there are, for most people, it's just the basics. There are certainly, you know, special, special considerations and things like that. Like we talked about with the ultra endurance athletes where, um, you know, an extra layer of intervention might be beneficial for them, but, you know, start at the bottom first and realize that there's very, very little, you can probably change about the gut microbiome. Um, and, uh, people will try to sell you a lot of things, you know, um, contrary to that, uh, evidence, but, you know, save your money on the vegetables and, um, gym membership or whatever you need to do to be physically active and like maybe a massage or something to help you manage stress. Awesome. Where can people connect with you if they want to find you? Uh, they can find me on Facebook and Instagram at vitamin PhD. I have a website, vitamin PhD nutrition.com where they can look at my other podcasts. Um, other things that I've, I've posted some videos on the microbiome lectures and a few different places, RP plus revive stronger, stronger experts. Um, the muscle and diet MBAs both have lectures on the gut microbiome. So absolutely check those out. And, um, yeah, feel free to shoot me a message through that website or DM me on Instagram. Um, they can also find me on renaissanceperiodization.com if they like to do, uh, email type coaching. And I also do video coaching as well. So kind of two different veins, depending on what you're looking for, but yeah, absolutely reach out and say, hi, I try to answer every DM. I don't, I think unless I like accidentally delete them, I answer them. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on Quinn, Jared. Thank you guys so much. Gabby, this was great. Thank you. Yeah. Thank oh, you. glad. Thank you guys. And it was great talking to you. We'd like to thank Dr. Gabrielle Fondero for coming on the show. You can check out the show notes for links to Dr. Fondero's contact info. We highly recommend following her work. And of course, thank you to my homies, Jared Maynard and John Flagg, for steering the ship alongside me. And thank you, the clinical athlete community, all six of you, for joining us on this journey of knowledge and improved practice in both the gym and clinic. If you want to dive even deeper into the clinical athlete community, you can check out all that the clinical athlete forum has to offer, which includes our clinical athletes, academy courses, amazing discussions and networking with professional clinicians and coaches, as well as students, and just our overall hub of knowledge in regards to athlete health and performance. And don't forget to check out details to the Kalu Summit coming up in September. Thanks everyone and talk to you soon.